this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. Put yourself in this situation. You've busted your tail to save the money. You've suffered through unsuccessful tag draw after unsuccessful tag drawing. All while training to stay in shape to be able to chase an animal up and down a western mountain range. And it finally happens. The stars align, the heaven opens up, and you draw the tag that you've been working towards for years. You book the hunt and head west, rifle in hand. But you've never fired your rifle beyond 200 yards. When the shot presents itself, the closest you can get to your quarry is double or even triple that distance. What are you going to do? Do you shoot and hope you don't miss, or worse, wound the animal and never find it? Well, have no fear, because we have the answer to that question. This week, we are joined by Zach Darlington of Heartland Precision Rifles. Heartland Precision Rifles offers a wide variety of training to suit every level of experience, and they have a class specifically designed for extended range game harvest and hunt prep so that when the opportunity presents itself, you can squeeze the trigger with confidence, not a hope and a prayer. Zach, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, Heartland Precision Rifles. Well, first, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I know we've uh, been looking forward to this for a while. But uh, so as far as Heartland Precision goes, we uh, we kind of got our start in, uh, in the heart of the U.S., right there in Nebraska. Um, I uh, was actually in college at the time uh, playing football there in Nebraska and Got involved with Ducks Unlimited, and um, at one of the end-of-year banquets, there was a, uh, a sponsor at the banquet that had a pretty sweet-looking rifle set up on a table. And uh, I went over because I obviously you know, had an interest. Kind of struck up a conversation with, uh, his name was Kenny Wynn. He was running at the time was T3 Operational Solutions. Um, he was a former Army sniper and sniper schoolhouse instructor. Um, and then he was the sniper team leader for counter drug unit there in Nebraska. And uh, when he got out, he started up T3 as kind of just a consultant uh, training and um, just all around firearms industry or entity for uh, law enforcement, SWAT teams, private security. And we kind of started dabbling with um, some civilian training, which is why he was at the banquet. Uh, they were putting on a civilian uh, course for um, a raffle so just because I had the interest, um, struck up a conversation, he ended up kind of making it known that he needed uh, you know, some help out there on the range, just moving some steel around, just being a labor hand. And I jumped at first chance I got, volunteered, and uh, I guess kind of took off from there. So eventually we ended up growing to the point where we decided to rebrand uh, to Heartland Precision Rifle and you know, kind of primarily focus on the precision rifle industry. Um, and then integrating from the, you know, more military law enforcement, private training sector to really get out and, you know, help grow the outdoorsmen, the hunters, uh, the competitors, and really just help the precision rifle, um, you know, subject grow to, you know, all sorts of different, uh, walks of outdoors. And so that was kind of our goal. And, um, that was back in 2017 when I started with them and, 
So now we've expanded to a point where uh, we've expanded down to uh, Florida, and we've got a Florida location here as well. And that's what my role is here, is uh, running our, our southeast operation. So what drove the, the company to offer that the course specifically tailored to hunting? So, you know, we kind of always did it where, you know, like I said, when we wanted to make that um, leap and really start involving um, civilians into it, um, that's where a lot of times we'd run into guys where, oh, you know, I don't need to go through, you know, a long range rifle course. Like I'm not a sniper, you know, I don't need to, I don't need to be shooting like that, this or that. And, you know, I'm just a hunter. And, and so Kenny and I kind of got to a point where we were, you know, yeah, we understand that. But at the end of the day, the things that we're focusing on and we're really building, um, and, and trying to help build the foundation of for those shooters in our courses, um, those same, uh, topics, can be applied to hunting and really across firearms in general but just having that um you know long range precision or sniper um i guess mentality of it from a uh you know potential customer or from the outside looking in um we saw that there was a chance for just maybe a little misunderstanding and that's where um we started working with some local uh, hunters to help them understand exactly how they can maximize the platform they have, the equipment they have, um, and really be able to, um, I guess, extend their abilities as a marksman and as a, an ethical hunter. And so it kind of just started there. Um, and then when we got down here in Florida, it, it really, really took off. So it's pretty sweet because you guys build guns too, actually. So you somebody can come to you, have a gun built, and then you can train them on that specific gun exactly that's actually kind of what um how that whole portion or you know service uh began um was just the fact that you know some of these rifles especially when you start to really step up into um you know a new category i know you guys have covered uh you know the differences in your factory rifle your semi-custom rifle and your full custom rifles and like y'all talked about on your podcast, you know, those are significant stances or, or you know, um, I guess jumps and not only, you know, performance um, and just quality, but, you know, just the overall um, efficiency and, um, I guess, advancement of the actual rifles themselves. And so there can be some co complexities to it, but at the end of the day, it's kind of, we've always pitched it as, you know, okay, if you're going to go buy a race car, just because you have a race car doesn't make you a race car driver. So you need to learn to drive a race car. And yeah. so that's kind of been our pitch where, you know, okay, now you've bought the race car. Let us teach you how to drive the race car, maximize the race car, and become very efficient with that race car. So, You know, an easy way to look at it is a Mustang and a Ferrari are both sports cars. Right, but there's no comparing the two of them. Oh no, yeah. no, and and at the end of the day, I feel like the the only argument to that is just the fanboy stuff, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like oh, I don't care, I'll put my stang up against anything, you yeah. know. So, um, I get it. Some people live and die by it, and I respect it. Oh, so, so. you get people like that with guns too? <laughs> oh, oh goodness, it's yeah, not, that's yeah. a, that's Pandora's box. If we yeah. jump in that, so it's not even so much guns as much as it is. Uh, it's the any caliber branding. of the gun, yeah. and I think you know? honestly, and and just. You know, the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a significant advancement in not just firearms, but calibers specifically, where the ability for, you know, just your average reloader to start wildcatting and trying to produce their own cartridge or maybe wanting to really maximize a commercial cartridge or, you know, just the kind of tinkering with it. And that's where 
um, you know, these new cartridges start to get developed, and then all of a sudden you really see them take off. And I mean, think about just six five Creedmoor. I mean, that was I think I came back from Horny in like oh eight, and now you've got six five PRC three hundred PRC, and those were like not even I think five, maybe five years old. Yeah. And so I mean, just there's all sorts of, and it's like every year there's a new one. The six eight Western just came out, and I mean, it's just all the time. There's something that's different, and and it's kind of with today's day and age, I always feel like it's more of a um, they kind of take something that already exists, you know, they might tweak this or that, they polish it up some, and they just dump some marketing behind it. <laughs> and so when you're able to get some good social media traction behind it and just marketing in general, you create a pretty good following pretty fast. So what does one of these courses run? Like, the average person, what's it going to run somebody to take one of these courses? So depends on um, specifically what we're going to look at in terms of which courses so i'm assuming we're, we're discussing you know our, our ergh or extended range game harvest yeah. and then our lr hunt prep courses so we offer them typically as the ergh course is more of a general course so just the extended range game harvest is a you know a general approach to you know really multiple uh, p- potential hunting applications um and so we're going to cover basically in our lrp1 course um we just teach the uh an adherence to the fundamentals of marksmanship um and just really developing and laying a solid foundation of the fundamentals themselves so that we can kind of have a good fresh starting point to really build from um because that's kind of really a lot of times what you run into is having to you know break bad habits and so trying to lay that foundation in our lrp1 course and we get into just your you know simple you know advanced ballistics your scope utilization um understanding atmospheric ballistics internal external terminal um just enough to that they can understand what's taking place as they're sending that round down range and then with our ergh course we now just take that from just typical target shooting and start explaining it in a specifically a hunting application so that's more of a we typically do those as uh, open enrollment courses however in florida though um with our demand we've not been able to run but i think two open enrollment courses in the last year and a half you know all of them have been private courses where we get private booked um for specific training needs um and so our private courses is typically that's where that long range hunt prep comes in where i'm then developing that same curriculum but then applying it to their specific hunt that they're about to go on um and so those courses though um so for one person if it's just a one-on-one um, and it's a full day's course um classroom portion shooting on the range and typically you know depending on what time of the season um we'll go till the sun goes down so you know it's not a specific limited time this or that um but for one person it runs at 5.99 and then at for two people it goes down to uh 4.15 a person and then at for three people, it's at three fifty a person, and then for four, it's at three twenty a person. You know, as an analytical guy, I'm just ready to like, take my wallet. <laughs> you know, you start whipping off all that ballistic stuff, and I'm like, "Here you go, for. take it all." <laughs> yeah, that's that's the customer we're looking for. So uh, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> but really, though, I mean, you got to think. Yeah, once you're if you're going on that that hunt, you want all that just to come back and know that when you get in that situation. <laughs> that you're going to know what to do correct the correct way well and specifically you know you asked exactly you know like what um you know 
kind of caused or drove us to you know create this specific course um and so like i said in nebraska we would do it here and there at request this or that um but you know easily 90 to 95 percent of the training we're running up there are our lrp or long range precision courses which consist of four courses um one two three and four and they go from your basic fundamentals marksmanship and your advanced scope utilization um all the way up to extreme long range and advanced ballistics out to a mile and a quarter and so that's kind of the main demand up there now here um when i got down here um, it was specifically a situation like you just mentioned. I had a guy call me, and he said, uh, you know, I, this is kind of hard for me to even have to ask, but, um, you know, I'm, I've got a hunt that I'm coming up on. I'm going to be going on an elk hunt, and um, I went on one previously, and long story short, I did not realize, you know, what exactly took place um, once that round goes downrange past the distance that I'm um, familiar with, or maybe even the, not even the most familiar with, but, you know, the maximum you've ever engaged. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, ultimately, it was, uh, it was a hunt that he, he can't get back. Um, it's money he can't get back. And uh, at that point, he realized that, like you said, you're, if you're dumping that kind of money into the hunt, you know, these are, depending on where you're going, these can be ten to $20,000 hunts. Yeah. And if you got all this that's going down... And you like you, I think you mentioned if you're not shooting past 200 yards before, but you're going to go out to, you know, Montana, Wyoming, and you're going to be going mountaintop to mountaintop, 650, 800. There's a lot that's taking place, and if you don't specifically, um, it's not that it's complex even once you understand it uh, to be able to account for it, but we simply say you don't know what you don't know, and so if it's if you're not even aware of what's taking place, then you don't know how to correct for it. And so that's simply, you know, why we started uh, this course was where I kind of took that curriculum and specifically put it into, um, like I said, our hunt prep course where I was working with the customer and the client um, directly for weeks as we prepared um, to where I wanted to know where he's going, this, you know, the game that he's hunting, um, the time of year he's going. Um, the caliber, his weaponry, his, you know, all the uh, gear and equipment he plans to use. If he's going to be walking or if he's going to be in a stand. Um, is it hill country? Is it flatland? Is it mountaintops? And then, um, and then specifically, I'll ask if he's, if he's going to be, you know, guided or is he going to be self-guide? Um, and then if it's guided, um, I'll coordinate with the actual guide themselves. So I can get a little bit more specific detail of, you know, the average animal that they're typically pursuing, the average distance that he'll have a, you know, a, a hunter take, you know, their quarry at, you know, the different, you know, um, weather conditions they may run into, get the very specific um, curveballs they could potentially run into. And then I kind of take that curriculum. And then at that point, I kind of base all of our training um, around, you know, the, I guess the higher percentage of what he's going to have to go and experience. So and then, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to ask. With some of the distances that you were talking about, I mean, obviously you always got to adjust for just gravity, right? But I would assume when you start talking about 800,000 half mile, I mean, things like spindrift, humidity, temperature, right? Because the density. Of the oh, air. yeah. You're, you're, you need all, if I'm, I'm, at, I'm making a statement, I'm really asking a question. The reason you're gathering all that data about that specific hunt for that guy is because you're trying to then get really into the granular to address those issues because 
although each like spindrift is only one small component but when you had spindrift humidity correct you're at a higher elevation so you got less yep Right, compared to taking that flat shot in Florida, mm-hmm. and heck, we're not even addressing them for wind. Yeah, and right? if you kind of break it down to where if you look at each individual factor, you know, on its face, it may not have a drastic effect. But when you put them all into yeah, the equation, the with. sum of those, you know, of all those different factors, the end result is going to end up being substantial, especially if you do not have any attempt to uh, correct for it. And so there, you know, it's very, um, it's really not that difficult um, to tackle once you're familiar with the approach to it, the solutions for it, um, and that kind of process. But ultimately, you know, there's going to be things that, um, you know, basic, you know, like what you're discussing, you know, that's kind of your basic, um, you know, uh, just precision shooting in general. We're not even specifically diving into hunting um, experiences in terms of, you know, solving for that. Because if you go shoot in a, a tactical match or competition, you've still got to account for all that. If you're on a hunt, though, what happens if you're always, you've only trained to shoot from the laying down? How many times have any of us ever <laughs> taken an animal laying prone? It's probably fairly rare unless you were literally set up on a power line on a platform and just waiting for something to walk out. And so teaching them then how to, okay, if I get to a position and my line of sight um, is I have to be up this high, well, what shooting position am I going to, you know, apply so that I can get my maximum stability and be able to still ethically engage this, um, this animal and, you know, ultimately land a, a precise shot um, without having those other factors still come into play. And so those first factors, we kind of talked about those ballistics, your, uh, you know, all your atmospheric stuff like that. Um, my point is that those kind of things are going to, you know, take place no matter the uh, situation you're in, in terms of target shooting, just plinking, range time, hunting, competitions but then it's the um the hunt scenario specifically that is kind of like the pop quiz so if you will roll into this hunt and you only have a shot at this distance and you don't have you've never shot from say maybe leaning off of a tree or off of a fence post or kneeling or um off of your backpack it's off a bipod yeah learn even even little tricks I would assume these are really basic things. I apologize, but no, just, if fine. you haven't done it, you don't think about it, right? That yeah. okay, you're going to wind up sitting in a sitting or kneeling position. You're on a bipod, but you have a backpack with you. Get that backpack up under, you know, in your lap, so mm-hmm. you have a, a third point of contact. I mean, you're covering all that stuff with people as well. Oh yeah, and Those the are biggest, simple tricks. But. And the biggest thing is, is it's it's um, just kind of showing them that this may seem overkill to take this with you on your hunt in terms of this gear. Um, but once you realize exactly how crucial and critical that piece of gear can be to, you know, aiding in the stability of your shooting position, I guarantee you, you won't go anywhere without it. <laughs> so, yeah, no you know, and in just little stuff like, you know, I've got a my kind of, you know, varmint predator, just all around general uh, hunting bag, just a little uh, sl- single sling uh, tactical bag that uh you know i just keep all my basic stuff in but then the fact it's single sling i can easily slot you sling it around have it underneath my elbow now i have no wiggle room in between my elbow and my body and i can truly relax my body and settle without having
having to try and stabilize, but then it's something that it's not just to hold my calls or, you know, my beef jerky if I get hungry or this. <laughs> it's a, all those things is you can actually use a lot of the stuff you already have on you, but if you don't know how to use it, you're not going to think to use it. What do you got to overcome the cactus spur that's right between the, uh, you know. <laughs> you know, at the end <laughs> like of the day, that, that, that's the sort of thing where it's just going to take just time and practice and just repetition. Yeah. So I just say just keep sitting on the cactus and <laughs> kind of just absorb it, kind of like recoil, you know. You, you get rid of your flinch by just shooting over and over again. So just keep sitting on the cactus until it doesn't hurt anymore, I guess. My man. <laughs> you know, I, I know a lot of these guys going on like these – hunts where they're hiking super far and stuff and they're having you guys build a custom rifle for them are really trying to cut down on weight oh yeah but at what point does a weight like a rifle become too light so you know there's a few different factors that's going to come into you know whether or not it's too light and specifically you know when we talk too light it's because you know the weight of the rifle will actually aid in you know the ability to um, absorb and, and mitigate recoil and so recoil at the end of the day, for layman's terms, is, um, you know, the punch in the chest you receive when you fire that rifle. And so a lot of times, I think the biggest reason um, you see um, that we call recoil anticipation or flinch, um, specifically in hunters, is because we've kind of always kind of just grown up thinking, oh, you have to shoot the, you know, the just grandpa's whopping caliber. <laughs> And you're going to shoot it in a probably pretty factory, light, plastic stock with no muzzle brake. And uh, and that thing's going to hit you pretty solid. And if you're not out training that, every, you know, multiple times and getting familiar with what that uh, recoil feels like, yeah, it's going to catch you off guard. And so that's kind of where... Um, the weight of the rifle can actually help um, because obviously the heavier the rifle, you know, that energy is not going to be able to push it um, back into you uh, nearly as easy. So if you're shooting those heavier calibers, that's where as you start to lighten the rifle up more and more, that's where you're going to start to feel it more. Now, it's not going to become a problem until the shooter or the hunter themselves is not able to efficiently send that round down range without you know, putting any sort of shooter influence into the rifle. So, so if, a, if a guy comes to you and says he wants a three-pound rifle chambered in seven mag, do you kind of look at him and be like, you don't, no, you really don't. That's like a 3D printed rifle. I know, but yeah. you, you, you would advise the person um, that that's probably a bad idea. I well, know you so, want to have a light, either, either, either change calibers or, or, or bulk up the rifle. Yeah. Well, first, you know, in just respect to their, you know, emotions, going to first try and inquire what's your level of, uh, you know, experience with shooting this caliber? How familiar are you with it? You know, is this the first rifle you just got and you just got it in this caliber because your buddy said to get it in that caliber and now you want it carbon fiber because carbon fiber looks like what Batman wears? Then... Yeah, we're probably going to probably yes. look at something different. <laughs> but if it's something where, you know, this guy literally has, like, seasoned experience behind this caliber, and he hand loads, he understands it, he knows it, it's not, you know, it's not something that's, he understands the factor that that, you know, lightweight may, um, you know, play in that equation, and he's still willing to go with it. At that point, that's his call. And that's where the custom rifle side of it is. You know, I tell people all the time, like, yeah, I've got my preference on a rifle for me, 
But if you come to me and you've got this specific thing that you are dead set on, you love it. Well, awesome, man. That's why you get a custom rifle. <laughs> so it, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't typically influence, you know, a customer on their build outside of, you know, their, um, I guess. I guess, inquiring about it in terms of, you know, what would you recommend this or that? And then I can, you know, just by the general consultation, uh, you know, um, process, I can really understand exactly where they're at with it and maybe the reasons or the factors that may be determining why they want to do this specific feature. Um, but in terms of the recommendation for it, I, the biggest area that I do see where I'll just kind of try to maybe um, offer, you know, other alternatives is uh, caliber selection. Um, and the reason is, I know that is just a hot boiling pot of water. Um, but the reason is, is that I think that there's a lot of stuff that is readily available. Um, that's factory stuff, you know, obviously not right now in the pandemic, but you know, in terms of, you know, when everything's back to how it was, you know, about a year ago, um, there's, you know, certain calibers out there that can have, you know, the ballistic performance they're looking for without having to suffer um, some of the uh, maybe energy recoil um, and just overall uh, power factor on the shooter um, in terms of their what they're trying to use it for. So that would be the biggest thing, especially and the number one factor to that is going to be figuring out if they're hand loading themselves or if they plan to just go and buy factory ammo. So you said something earlier in talking, you said that like, you know, talking about per basically a newbie or a seasoned tonner how often do you guys have people that are just like this is their first gun coming in they're going on this this is pretty much their first hunt you know here and there um you know when we first started doing it it was a lot more um where they were wanting kind of a hybrid rifle is what we would call it um, so when I kind of sit down with them, I'm, I'll ask, you know, okay, what is the application in which you want to use this rifle? Do you want it specifically for a hunt? Is it for a specific hunt or is it for just a general hunting rifle? Is it a target or competition rifle or is it something you want to kind of have as your do all? And so it's, I would say, you know, over a year ago, it was always typically your do all rifle. And so that was where, you know, you know, they didn't have, um, it wasn't for anything specific. They've hunted all the time. They want just kind of, you know, maybe they want something new. They want to maybe uh, just something that's a little bit flashier, a little bit uh, unique that's, you know, custom for them. Um, but I would say, you know, in the last year, though, it's definitely stepped up. And I don't know if, uh, you know, and just roll with me on this, but I don't know if it had anything to do with stimulus checks. But, um, <laughs> you know, when, yeah. when stimulus checks started rolling in, it seemed like deposits started falling. So that's where, you know, guys were going on specific hunts. And then, uh, you know, or, you know, all of a sudden, yeah, I've never thought about getting a custom rifle, but I just got 1400 bucks for nothing all right looks like i'm getting it so i'm like oh sweet yeah you and got so, guys that guy's sitting at home all day going <laughs> a lot of youtube videos I, <laughs> so maybe i should uh, look into going on this hunt or yeah oops. no you you'd be surprised um you know it's one of those things where i'm like hey you know I'm, I'll, I'll roll with it but when uh i would so in the last six months yeah i'd probably say they started there became a lot more of um you know, typically when you go into, when you decide, we'll start out like you and I did, where maybe you take just a factory full rifle and you start breaking it down 
component by component of things that you know you can um, you know get a better performance if you replace and then at that point you're either bitten by the bug or it was too much for you and you'll never do it again uh i have 250 percent caught it's um it's a disease it is it truly is it's a pandemic yeah <laughs> it's contagious because i like rifles but ever since i started hanging around you also i'm like i'm gonna need some more ar lowers man they look the mr potato head i got a million different things i could put on that thing well i had the i had the realization of one it's bad enough if you get bit by the bug and you just enjoy doing it in general but if you get bit by the bug and you realize i cannot afford to fund this addiction that's dangerous and so i was like well i got one of two things i can either just throw my life away into trying to just buy these sweet rigs and build these sweet rigs or i could turn it into a business and make money doing it so <laughs> oh, that's, that's how kinda, you got it that's yeah. kind of where it, where it went and so i was like if i can't um if i can't afford to just do it myself i'll just build them for people so then in, for a small moment of time it is my rifle <laughs> and so yeah that's <laughs> you know that's the one thing i really love about building rifles in particular be it bolt action or especially ar platform is um it is expensive to build a really nice rifle but i don't have to pay for it all up front <laughs> i i do what i like to call johnny cashing it where it's one piece, one at, piece a time. at a time baby. Yep. Yeah. one piece at a time <clears throat> but the worst part about that is is then you know uh you buy a receiver and you're like i got it <laughs> and then you get the barrel and you're like oh man i gotta get that stock yep so <laughs> Can we eat ramen noodles for the next two months? <laughs> Can we live on just ramen noodles for the next two months? Yep. Uh, I you, told you, man. That was my yeah. tip of the week last week. You, you got to set up that wealth coordination account and go have that ten percent of your paycheck just dropped into your into your. You can make a third one, and make it your gun account. Just yeah. go to a third bank and open that up. Right. <laughs> Another ten percent dropped into there. Your so, kids like how can your paycheck so small, honey? I have no idea. So I won't. I won't. I guess jump uh, too far ahead on the tip of the day, but this will just be a side little. Here's two cents for you. Find an investor. That's where that's where it changes everything. <laughs> Find an investor, and that's, that's where, where it turns all of a into sudden, a business. All of a sudden, like dollar signs. I'm I'm honestly ashamed that you know I used to go into a absolute meltdown, panic shock when I'm looking at getting this new optic, this and that, and then you get to a point where you're making you know just like large bulk purchases, and I'm like, oh my lord, like I. A, you know, three years ago, no chance, no chance, not having it. Wouldn't have been able to do it. Would have had a complete breakdown, but an investor will change all that. So what is something you have learned um, teaching these classes? I mean, you're out there as a teacher. There's got to be at some point you've got to learn something that you never thought you would learn just from the repetitiveness, the repetitiveness of it. So, you know, the whole way that I even got into this in general, and I'm, this isn't backpedaling, but this has to go exactly with what you're you're asking is so um when our company started obviously we were training you know primarily you know, law enforcement uh, SWAT teams some small uh sniper units stuff like that and so i was you know t3 operational solutions was a, a veteran owned and operated company and so our assistant instructors uh for the classes um like i mentioned kenny uh, my business partner now um, he was a former army sniper and at one point he was running the counter drug uh, sniper unit. So when he got out, we would contract the local sniper drug, uh, or the counter drug sniper unit as our, um, assistant instructors. And so I'm on the range just as this, you know, just college kid 
just huffing steel around, painting stuff, stepping in cow patties, running the John Deere, and then would get back to class and get back up to the, the classroom before everyone got there. And I'd put a chair up in the corner and I'd pull out my notebook and I'd sit through those courses and learning from a sniper schoolhouse instructor himself for several years, things stuck after a little bit, but it was kind of the fact that, you know, I was the only non, you know, military, um, you know, person in the company. And so that was kind of where I thought, dang, like, am I going to get a, like, get a chance to stay on with the company, uh, you know, after I'm done with college and, you know, that's a rabbit hole, but long story short, I did get a chance and it was kind of because, um, I kind of, I guess, had a different view and approach to learning it than Kenny was used to teaching it. And then also, you know, these other guys uh, were, um, you know, used to um, applying it. And so, you know, they've all learned it through the sniper school itself. And so I'm learning it from, you know, not learning to have to go and defend my country, you know, provide Overwatch or um, anything for, you know, an operation or anything like that. Not a life and death situation, but generally, you know, genuinely just a, um, a pure um, interest. And so Kenny realized that when you have a, an interest and you truly want to learn and you're not, you know, the government's not paying for you to go there um, and you're not, you know, forced to go there, you're coming there on your own time. But when it comes to um, learning from a perspective of just, you know, pure interest and um, desire, I realized that... Um, your uh, the way in which you approach them or try to teach them um, can change, and so you know that was where you know Kenny saw that um, you know I genuinely just wanted to learn. You know I was an open book. Um, I had no experience in it whatsoever. With as I look back now, I realize that is the best way to possibly start. Um, and so being a blank canvas for someone like Kenny to literally build from the ground up. Um, helps a lot. And so when I started getting up to a point where, um, you know, I started assistant instructing, helping out on the range, helping out on the line, it was because I was just taking the little things I was learning in the classes. And as I'm helping and assisting, um, you know, Kenny started realizing that I was picking them up and learning them and learning how to teach them from a different perspective than he's used to as a sniper schoolhouse instructor, or these guys are as, as snipers. And so that, um, I guess that approach was, um, kind of unique to where, um, that's when Kenny, you know, gave me that chance to really step into a role of, of, you know, teaching and instructing. And so our whole, um, atmosphere and just revolving around the, uh, the instruction, the range, the course in general, is just a very laid back, um, very casual, um, because when it comes to the ability to, um, you know, deliver accurate and precise rounds downrange at, you know, extended distances while factoring in all these, you know, different elements, there, a state of mind has to come into play. And we kind of call that your shooter's bubble, which is, and that was kind of a term, uh, coined by Carlos Hathcock where he described it as literally being so like locked in and tunnel focused that there is no distraction around you. And so 
that in learning environment is something that if we can create that as instructors, then that's going to allow the shooter to relax a little bit and to be able to get behind that rifle and not be so amped up and not overthink and not put, you know, unintentionally put more influence into that rifle. For those of you who don't know who Carlos Hathcock was, he was a Marine sniper, I believe, in Vietnam, had a nickname, White Feather, and made, for a long time, he had the longest shots uh, that have were eclipsed. I don't think they were eclipsed until Afghanistan. Yeah, well, right? he was but known for his absolutely stalking. Absolutely lethal. Yeah, yeah and he his, was a creature. It was just eerie. I mean, yeah. he was... Truly, he was what a lot of people would probably, you know, term as like the first, you know, sniper in terms of what you think of right when you hear that, you know, that term. And so um, he had a very, very unique ability. And they do it different. I mean, he would go out alone or with one guy, and yeah. they'd be gone for a long time. You'd hear about they'd go out with some guys, peel off. They wouldn't even know when they left, and then they'd be fall. Then they'd be coming back in from a patrol several days later, and all of a sudden they'd be walking with him and not know him. Not know they got there. It was just they were eerie. Well, and that I honestly think they can, and I don't, you know, I can't speak to it, um, you know, on so much, but just in terms of, you know, learning from from Kenny, learning from these guys, knowing the approach, the mindset, um, you know, that they that was kind of, um, you know, trained and put, yeah. you know, for them. Um, I feel like he was probably one of the ones that really established that baseline of what it should be like. So I was gonna say. Um, Carlos Hathcock pretty much wrote the book on the sniper course in the military. Yeah. He, I know, you know, obviously there's been just all kinds of, um, you know, very successful um, marksmen and, and snipers. And, you know, we always hear about the ones that with like all the kill counts. But, you know, the one thing that I've learned, and I think, you know, if there's any guys in, that are listening with, you know, military or sniper uh, experience, the, um, the trigger puller, Typically is the you know the the lead singer of the rock band, but then the uh, the spotter is the one that that's the one. If you're at NASA, yeah, you might be trigger puller might be flying the rocket, but the ones that are making the calculations and and you know accounting for everything that could go catastrophically wrong, um, you know they never even get to have the success that they do and we know about if that spotter doesn't do his job. And so I know. That's where I learned and gained a huge amount of respect for, um, you know, not just instructors in general, but specifically spotters, because, you know, as we are instructing and trying to, um, you know, help these students learn and be able to have success at, you know, extreme distances of, you know, a thousand yards, a mile and times. And there's a lot that goes into play that, yes, the shooter has to do. However, the shooter could do everything right and have great fundamentals um, and do be the perfect um, student that we're looking for. And if I'm off on my my calculations, my you know uh, elevation correction, my wind call, then they don't they don't experience that success. And so in a yeah. way, it's <laughs> there's a lot still on you. The 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 spotter is such an important role in a sniper team that you can't pass sniper school without passing as a spotter. And I know that, and I, like I said, I've not gone through sniper school, and so I, I'm not speaking from experience, but I do know just from what we've learned, because, you know, Kenny based all of our curriculum, um, was all developed around, you know, the Army Sniper Schoolhouse um, curriculum that he taught, and specifically is evolved to more, um, you know, outdoorsmen and, you know, general marksmen or firearms um, 
you know, enthusiast um, applications. But um, when it comes to, um, you know, the, the, that team dynamic, um, typically the spotter was the, the more skilled, the uh, more experienced, the seasoned guy, um, because that's the one that it takes a long time to be able to develop the ability to be on point with all of your responsibilities on the first time. And so it's one of those things that doesn't really just happen overnight. Right. So one of the, you know, we talk a lot about this course and, um, you got to keep in mind when you're looking at this stuff is it's not, it's not an additional expense. I mean, it does cost, it does add an, an additional expense to your hunt. Um, but, if you got this, if you were awarded a hunt and you didn't have a rifle, you would buy one, right? You're awarded a rifle tag. I don't have a rifle. I'm going to go buy one uh, because a rifle is a tool in your tool bag. And you really need to look at a class like this um, if you don't have that experience. Or even if you think you do, it is an additional tool in the tool bag to refine and hone the skills that you already have mm-hmm. or teach you some brand new ones. And I think, you know, you're, you're, you're spot on with that. And I think when, uh, you know, it's one of those things that um, for maybe the, uh, you know, the shooter that's just getting into, you know, precision rifle or, um, you know, maybe even firearms in general, because, uh, you know, we have all levels of experience of shooters coming through our courses, everywhere from literally never shot a gun, novice to, you know, seasoned competitors, military snipers. So really it's there's a wide variety of you know skill levels that come through but when it comes to um you know those hunts specifically you know at that point they're viewing it as an investment and so if you're going to make an investment you want to have a little bit of insurance on that investment and so if there's any way to eliminate or reduce um you know a certain percentage of your investment failing this is it. This is how you go through and you make sure that um, every potential factor that could have um, an outcome on that investment negatively, you have accounted for and you know how to correct for and hopefully eliminate and be able to have success on that hunt. So what is the number one bad habit you see people bring to these courses? I mean, it, it, it really depends. And I don't want to jump in and just act like, oh, you know, I'm this shooter and I've got, I don't have bad habits. No, that's not the case. It does take something where um, even, like I said, you know, when I got into this and, you know, I was being kind of mentored and trained by Kenny, um, even though I was a blank canvas, I still had natural bad habits. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the probably primary one that I would say I uh, notice uh, the most um, and the, it's not that it's not important, but because I notice it so much, it can have a severe effect, um, would be, it's kind of a combination of that, uh, recoil anticipation, uh, slash, um, what we call a turkey peaking, um, which is, you know, when you really break it down to it and how we explain it in class, it makes you kind of, you know, feel like, you know what, I've kind of feel like an idiot for doing it but when we talk turkey peaking just picture uh you know you're out with your uh your dad in the front yard with your red rider bb gun you got a pepsi can up on the post and you're uh cock the lever action you ping and you immediately pop your head up and you look back at your dad like hey did i hit it rack another one shoot and you look straight back at your dad you don't even look and so in terms of sending that round 
when we're shooting on the range, if you're not staying behind that optic, you know, your mind literally is already moving to that next step of trying to see where you impacted. And so regardless of how minimal it can actually be, that movement that is taking place can disrupt your actual shooting um, shooter sequence in terms of being able to break that round and not um, you know, influence the um, final resting place of your reticle. And so when you pair that with the peeking over your scope to look if you hit the 600 yard target with your one power eye that you're looking over your five to 25 power optic and that's the point where they're like, ah, oh, wow, I kind of, I didn't think of it like that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and I'll typically just sit on the range and I'll say, uh, we'll say, uh, stay in the scope or stay behind the scope or stay on the glass. Um, because there's a few things that um, if you do stay behind the glass and you, you're able to, uh, you know, follow through, um, just like if you're a basketball player, you're always taught, you know, you take that free throw shot, you hold that hand up there, or you take your three-pointer, you hold that hand up there, you follow through. You don't just, I mean, unless you're Steph Curry, you don't just, you know, throw that shot and take off jogging before it even hits the rim. Um, or of a golfer, you know, you're taking your shot. You see those guys, they hold the whole time. And the reason why is because once they take that swing, they're doing a quick evaluation. So when I started my swing, I was aiming – at this specific position as I hit that ball did the ball and did my swing successfully have that ball land exactly where I was aiming so that follow-through allows you to evaluate your you know final hip position your where your shoulders are did you did the roll the club face through and all those little things if you just immediately throw the club down you don't quite catch if all of those details were you know performed correctly so when you put that into a shooting situation, specifically, we call it follow through because, you know, if you're shooting at a distance, um, you know, say, you know, 900 yards, you're going to have all sorts of factors that's going to come into play. And the one that, you know, is I think people, tr you know, kind of like lose their mind about the most is wind. And so when it comes to um, understanding wind, that first shot is crucial because obviously you've given it a wind call. You fought, you've you know, made your correction, whether you're dialing or holding off on wind. And then once you break that round, you have to now see with what you felt was the correct hold, did the round impact where you want. And if it didn't, you now know with your reticle, you can see, okay, I held here, but it landed there. So if it landed there, then I hold where it landed on the target. But if you jump off the scope right away, there's no way to evaluate that. And so there's just there, so I guess I would say that kind of combination of you know recoil anticipation slash uh, you know turkey peeking or not following through um, would be probably the primary um, you know I guess I don't want to say bad habit, but I guess a natural instinct um, that comes into play and can have a severe um, you know, impact on your success, you know, as you progress through our course or even just through just shooting out at the range. Um, because obviously you're not going to get better if you're not able to evaluate your performance of what's taking place. And so that would probably be, you know, one of the top things that we focus on, especially in those fundamental, the fundamentals of marksmanship. Um, as we're covering those, that's one we really harp on because it's everyone gets all caught up in all the other. Uh, you know fundamentals and they focus on those so much 
that's the one that, you know, that's the last one. That's yeah. the last one. That's the last part. You know, literally the last thing that could take place before that bullet goes down range is you being ready to jump off the gun. And so if you do everything else right, you know, if you, you're going on a huge trip, you go, you fill up the car, you do this, you didn't pack it up, you get the gas, you get all this, blah, blah, blah. But then, oh, I don't know where the keys are. Well, you can't even get in and start up the car. So yeah. at that point, it's one of those things where if you, if you, um, if you completely just, you know, don't focus on it, it you're going to miss a chance to, you know, perform some self-evaluation. Essentially, that comes down to them, like, breaking their shooter's bubble. Correct. Yep, and that's one of those things where, um, you know, I kind of realized um, you kind of asked, uh, you know, a while back about, you know, what's one thing that I've learned? Um, and it's hard to really narrow it down because I've realized that if you want to really, you know, learn and be knowledgeable on a subject and a topic, teach it. <laughs> because at that point, you're no longer just trying to learn it and absorb it for yourself you're trying to think, okay, how do I explain it to this person so that they can learn it? And you think on it in a total different manner. And so in probably just a more general um, answer would be everything. <laughs> you know, I think I've, I've got a different concept and understanding of, of really um, all uh, just a bunch of different factors because, um, you know, that, that shooter's bubble, for instance, is something where um, that takes time to develop. Because if you really think about it, essentially what's happening is you send a round down range is there is a detonation and a, an explosion of a projectile inches in front of your face. And so if you're not doing that on a normal basis, your brain is programmed to flinch. Just like if someone tried to throw a punch at your face, you're going to naturally flinch. You look at boxers, though. Boxers will have someone throw a punch and they have their eyes open still because they're training for it. And so I've noticed as I, as I, when I'll do a, say I'm working on a customer's rifle and uh, maybe there was a specific problem that they were having and I'm, uh, I'll take a video of me, um, you know, showing that I corrected for this problem and here's an example of me putting it to use on the range. And um, I noticed it when I was um, shooting and showing the, the, uh, um, the uh, rifle's ability to just cycle each round consecutively without jamming up. Um, and I noticed as I would, had I send the round, um, my buddy texted me when he, he, I showed him the video. He goes, what kind of psychopath doesn't even close their eyes when the round goes off? And I realized because, like, I've gotten so trained to literally follow through and look. And I'm more worried about looking where the bullet lands that I'm no longer even worrying about what's taking place around me. And that's kind of the concept of that shooter's bubble. So when you're, when you're starting out with a novice shooter, do you start them perhaps even on something like a 22 rimfire or, or a lighter caliber to work them into a heavier caliber? Um, I mean, in terms of like our classes or just my general, like what I would do personally. I was actually thinking about your classes. but I, So in yeah. terms of the classes, um, you know, it really depends on, um, you know, how they're coming to class. So, you know, obviously, like I said, there we've had students come through that have never shot. And so not only do they want to get into it, but if you've never shot, that means you don't have anything to shoot. So that means you don't have a firearm to bring with you. So at that point, you know, we've got rental rifles uh, that we provide, we can provide for class. So we typically keep um, your, you know, 6.5 Creedmoor is a popular one. We've got 308. We've got your, um, depending on the 
age of the, the student as well. You know, we've got 223, uh, some 700 bolt rifles that are set up, um, you know, with 24 inch barrels for literally precision um, set up rifles, but in those lower calibers. Now, in terms of um, what we're doing for class, though, um, we do have a caliber, you know, recommendation in terms of the minimum to bring through, which is a 243 really. Now you can bring like a 223 if you wanted. However, you got to understand that the, um, you know, limitations, um, especially the range limitations, the distance limitations, um, on that caliber, um, are going to come into play severely. So typically we say, um, you know, our first class, any of our classes, you're going out to 1100 yards on the first day. Um, now if you're trying to bring through and you want to teach your son on a 22 LR, yeah, probably not happening. And so that's where, um, it really comes down to, um, their experience if they're bringing a rifle, um, and then also the class they're taking. Cause if they're coming on a hunt, um, for instance, when we did, you know, the first, uh, like specific LR hunt prep course that we ever ran, that I kind of, it was where, you know, it was kind of our, um, our trial of, all right, let's see if this is going to be an effective approach to this. And I had developed a series of four courses for them. The first time, uh, they came through the class, we did a very basic, uh, just a fundamental focus day at just a hundred yards. Cause we really wanted to focus in on the basics and, uh, the son was shooting a 300 wind mag and the dad was shooting a seven mag. And it was one of those things where um, when it came down to the fundamentals and their ability um, to have success and of what we were trying to achieve that day, those calibers were, be- were beating them up pretty severely. However, they're going on this hunt with those calibers. And so they have to master those calibers. And so if we've got all the time in the world and we can run all kinds of classes until then, then yeah, maybe we will try and start them on a lower caliber. But if it's something where time is of the essence in terms of training, uh, you know, ability, we've got to learn how to uh, still achieve what we need to fundamentally with the calibers that they're using. So it really depends on exactly how severe it gets. Um, but with just some basic stuff, um, and some dry fire practice, that's a big one, um, that will help a lot. Um, you know, we were able to at least identify the biggest, um, you know, potential shooter influences that were taking place in their shot. Um, so then once you identify it through dry fire, you can then know as you go into your actual shooter sequence in a live scenario, what exactly you need to focus on. So after the extended range game harvest course, what is, or, or what will, uh, that guy that has the the individual who's never shot more than 200 yards, what are they going to be capable of? So our goal and specifically the ERGH, um, excuse me, and we're, we're trying to make sure that that hunter, because the ERGH is a little bit more general, um, where we may learn several different or, uh, try and apply the uh, training in several different hunting scenarios, whether it's coyotes, hogs, bear, uh, elk, um, you know, if we're doing stuff semi-automatic, so that can kind of change based on, you know, the specific application. Um, but our goal is to help them as a shooter, um, establish their ethical kill limit and be competent in it. And so typically what I'll start off the class by asking them right now, if we walked out of this classroom to go on a hunt, 
what would your ethical kill limit be? Because then at that point, I know exactly what in their head is their, you know, max, you know, max distance that they're confident in their abilities. By the end of the course, typically we've doubled that, if not tripled. And so the goal is to understand not just your ability as a shooter, the abilities of the caliber you're shooting, the ability of your equipment that you're shooting. Um, and then that's, you know, also one of the primary things that you take away from the class is not only learning more about your abilities as a marksman and as a shooter, but understanding the limitations of your equipment and the, uh, your limitations of yourself as well. Sir, so, I'm sorry, you, you earlier, you've touched on caliber a couple <laughs> times. Earlier you mentioned 7 Mag and 300 as well, which are kind of, a lot of times people say, oh, you can take anything in North America with that. But coming down to, I guess what I'd like to know is, in your opinion, um, for somebody that wants to shoot a thousand yards or better, what calibers would you suggest that people be looking at? I, I got to assume that there's a number of them do it, but I guess what I'm asking, let's say, what are your top three, you personally? I guess I, I'm going to typically just go from the perspective of I'm going to try and buy factory match ammunition. So, you know, we could chase rabbits all day if you're a hand loader, this or that. Sure. So we'll not jump down that, you know, that rabbit hole too quick. But I do want to set my boundary limits just to know when, you know, takes in it out of, pers- you know, out of, uh, out of perspective. But, um, you know, so my typical, my number one round that I'm running with um, is what I've learned on, I've trained on, I've hunted just everything I've ever hunted on is uh, 6.5 Creedmoor. And there's several different reasons for that. And so, you know, the first reason um, is the um, ballistics and the ballistic performance um, when you compare it to, say, uh, something that's a, you know, maybe a parent cartridge or an alternative caliber. Um, So not trying to compare, you know, monster trucks to, you know, Mustangs. But if you're saying you're 6.5 Creedmoor to your 308 Winchester, um, there are obviously going to be your, you know, pros and cons of each. Um, but for specifically, like you're saying that thousand yards, um, that target application, you're going to be wanting to look at, um, those higher BC calibers, uh, BC meaning your ballistic coefficient. Um, so that essentially is just kind of, uh, just a general way of saying, um, or I guess more of a scientific way of saying just the bullets ability to fly to its target without being impacted by the, um, atmospherics and elements that are surrounding it on its way to the target so that's just kind of your vague uh, description but those higher bc bullets um are going to have um you know things like less deflection uh you know less drop um and then that's where um you're also because it's based off of a 308 case you're able to have a little bit more uh, powder capacity in your case longer higher bc bullet and then you're pushing it typically a little bit faster and so the only i would say you know the counter to that where the 308 went out uh, would be your energy inside of probably about 500 to 600 yards um that's where the 308 obviously is 30 cal bullet moving similar speeds depending on the round um and it's, so it's going to have you know probably more uh, you know, terminal uh, ballistic performance than your 6.5. However, um, I'm I don't want to stir the pot, but this is where this is kind of where my uh, I guess my philosophy comes into play that may I guess ruffle feathers, but um, shot placement is key. 
And yeah. so that's my biggest focus. And if I know a round and I know, you know, how it shoots out of my rifle and I know how I shoot it as a marksman um, and I know how it performs in the specific, you know, atmosphere that I'm an element that I'm going to be shooting in um, and I know how it performs up to X distance, then at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter what caliber it is as long as you know how to correct for it and you can properly place that round where it needs to go. You know, I, you know, when people try and say, oh, you can't take, you know, uh, this or that with a 6.5 Creedmoor, and, and I'll say, well, you know, if you, you got a 300 wind mag and you gut shot him, you gut shot him. <laughs> so it doesn't really sure. matter at the end of the day if, if you, you're placing it in the gut, you're placing it not where that ethical uh, kill shot is and those vitals. It doesn't matter what you're shooting. And so that's where I think some people sacrifice, um, you know, that um, ability um, to shoot and place that round where it needs to be for horsepower and um, energy and stuff like that. No, and I think you did a great job answering that question. I realized after I'd asked it that, you know, I I left it so broad because – I would, so I'll follow that as a, as a flat shooting round compared yeah. to that but I was actually asking those other questions I was thinking in a hunting application well and I would say, follow oh, that is it 6.5 or, or do you bump up to 7 mag or, or 300 just because like you said the terminal ballistics so I would say um, like you said though it, it really does depend on specifically that application and I know the argument wants to take place of what's your best all around caliber this or that Bingo, yeah. I mean that is one that man you can just be, we would have You'll never another win. year's worth of a podcast on here yeah. about it um, and so because there's so many pros and cons of each one but then also it comes down to the ability of a shooter as well and so um, when it comes to that you're talking about um i would say when it there's some ethical responsibility that takes place and that's probably you know the biggest thing that i want to put out there at the at the forefront um is the ethical portion of that takes a lot of humility and genuine self-evaluation of ability um and your ability and you kind of have to put the the pride aside and no matter how good you think you may be um can you ethically um send that round that caliber and know that you are not going to potentially wound or um you know cause a um cruel death to an animal and so that ethical uh, responsibility takes place with each individual though and so that's where i think the toss-up comes in now me personally um, if I were going on an elk hunt, um, I would be looking at um, probably the 6.5 PRC um, is one that we've gotten familiar with. Um, we've got, you know, house rifles in it. Um, there's a lot of quality ammunition available for it. Um, but then specifically, you know, touching on ammunition, like I said earlier, I'm kind of referring to, um, you know, the ability to have that quality factory match or factory um, you know, match hunting ammunition available and not just a fanboy like Hornady till I die or, you know, Nosler part whatever. You're looking for consistency. Exactly. And that comes from testing, you know, mm-hmm. and so I may have a round, you know, that shoots the 147 grain ELDMs from Hornady lights out single digit SDs, you know, everything that you're looking for. 
but then take that same caliber, 6.5 PRC, same ammo, toss it into another rifle, there's no guarantee you're going to get that same performance. So you can't technically, at least personally, I try not to, you know, just, I guess, sign my soul to a specific caliber or a specific uh, bullet or, or uh, you know, a ammunition offering from, you know, said manufacturer um, out of just devotion to that specific caliber because there's some things that may not take place the exact same every way in different rifles. And so I would say 6.5 PRC is one that I know I have tested. I have time behind. I have tested in different rifles. I've seen it on animals. I've seen it in, you know, just targets and, you know, target shooting in general. And so I understand it's ballistics and how it's going to, how it's going to, uh, uh, perform. So that's, that'd probably be my first consideration. Um, the one that I'm toying with right now, uh, that we're doing, uh, specifically for, um, a bear hunt, um, that is going to be, it's going to be an interesting evaluation, um, is the 300 PRC. Um, and that's one that is, um, it's kind of a newer round. So there's going to be some, um, you know, some learning that's going to take place with it. Um, and there's also just a lot of, you know, there's already people that have gone and had great success with it. And there's people that are, you know, have hand loaded it, um, stuff like that, that have really pushed the limits of it. And so obviously you've got your limitations from factory ammunition. Um, and so you can only get, you know, x muzzle velocity or or x cartridge overall length or but then when you start really toying with it yourself that's where you can start to push the performance boundaries of it and um so i would say the 6.5 prc and 300 prc are two that not only i would have an interest in but i've had several customers come to me uh, looking for um when we're talking specifically factory available quality ammunition now if you want to jump into the the custom hand load stuff that's we can do that too because that is a different animal that's one that gets a little out there before we get into that i, I want to thank you also for bringing up ethics because i realize also i keep thinking after i ask the questions like well you need to skip this get that i guess one of the first things you brought up ethics in a hunting situation and even if you've got the thousand yard club in your bag and you know how to hit it the first thing you should probably ask yourself is, can I get to 800? Can I get to 600? Can I get to 400? Right? Because no matter how good you are, you're still prone to air. The The most likely thing in there is going to be human air. But then all the human air on top of all those other elements mm-hmm. that the further you get from the time that that bullet left the crown, right, left the muzzle, the more those things compound in each other. So I guess the first ethical thing is, can I get closer? Do I need to take this shot? A hundred percent. I think, honestly, I think that's kind of where our responsibility as a hunter comes into place. You know, it's a, it's a part, it's, that's part of the chase, you know, that's part of the, um, you know, the challenge. And that's where the ethical side of it comes into play of, you know, these animals have the, they are incredible animals with incredible abilities. And so, you know, they have the ability to sense, uh, you know, when, when something is, you know, near them or makes a movement and this or that. And so it really makes you be on top of your game, um, and not take the easy way out that you might think you can, uh, you can take. Um, and then as you talk ethical limit, I think the, the part that gets overlooked is like you said, if you've got that, you know, say a thousand yard, uh, you know, impact in your in your bag or maybe even a mile well at that point that has nothing to do with your abilities in a hunting situation you know or i would say it it doesn't unless you got that impact 
from the specific hunting shooting position you were trying to, you know, take it from. So if you've shot, you know, out to a mile from laying prone with a, you know, 338 Lapua mag that's set up for, you know, a 30 pound rifle, but you're going to be hunting with a 6.5 Creedmoor um, or a, you know, 300 wind mag, but then you're going to be shooting from kneeling or off a backpack or standing, your limitations are going to get cut down significantly and the main reason is because if you haven't pushed the limits from those positions then you can't you know you can't ethically you know i guess establish a limit because you don't even know what your abilities are and that's where the kind of the training portion comes in and we specifically try to help them establish that ethical kill limit um because a lot of times it's something you don't really think about and when you do try and establish it you just say okay i don't know this is the furthest I've ever shot. And so I could probably do this, but then you're, you thinking, okay, well, how, what was the situation you shot him in? And so, well, is that the same type of way you're going to go and hunt? Because those are two different things. Yeah. And then have the discipline that once you've established that ethical kill limit, if it's just outside, it's still just outside. Yep. Yeah. So here's the thing too. We, we talk about ethics. Um, even if you're that guy that just shot, uh, was it just over three miles or just over two miles? The just the target just broke the record the other day. I, it might have been. I want to say it was close to four. I say it was. I want to say it was. Shit. It was over three miles. Yeah. Um, but you're that guy. You can hit that six foot by six foot target, which at at that distance is no easy feat whatsoever. It's a spat right. in your reticle. Yeah. Um, but you have. He had a. Ten, 10 second flight time oh yeah so that's Dude, at that you, distance you got to be taking into consideration things like coriolis force man oh right. spin of the earth well now let's think about this the target's though. moving right or the target's moving left <laughs> what i was getting at was you did everything perfect the conditions between you and the animal were perfect but as soon as you squeezed off the round a fly bit that elk in the ass so he steps forward and moves six inches from where he was when you squeeze yeah. off the round. There may only be a second and a half flight time, but where that elk was standing when the bullet mm -hmm. left the barrel, he's not there anymore. Yep. So you got to keep those things in mind too when you start stretching those shots out there. You really got to be taking notice of what that animal is doing. If well, he's I got think, head down feeding. You oh know. yeah, and I, I the biggest you know specific application I've experienced that type of scenario. Um, is varmint hunting, coyote hunting. Because when you call in a coyote, you know, you have to specifically wait and, and be able to identify their mannerisms that's taking place because you can tell if they're going to dart. You're, you can tell if they're curious. You can tell if, you know, they're on a beeline. And so kind of being able to understand the animal in which you're hunting is a huge factor too. And all this really does is puts more responsibility um, on the hunter to do their due diligence and make sure that they can, uh, you know, I guess take that shot um, and know that they, there was no, um, you know, unethical practice or approach or anything that was left out of play that was their responsibility. So I guess it's kind of just putting it on their conscience, and it's one of those things. Though, like we said, you don't you don't know if you don't know, and so right. Whew. We keep talking about this rabbit hole. <laughs> I yeah, I, I've, I, oh, this is a three hour podcast. If you wanted to be, yeah, uh, I know. Yeah, I kind of want to. Uh, 
I don't even know that I want to stick my head in the rabbit hole. I just want to shine a flashlight in there <laughs> for a moment. A just, quick moment. Just a tip. <laughs> but, man, we've talked about several different calibers. And another thing you got to think about, too, we talked about over-the-counter factory ammunition, right? Well, if you go out west, you can pick up uh, 280... Or, or 28 Nosler over the counter. 3040 Craig. Right? Go go to go to any gun store in a 50 mile radius of where we sit right now. They're not going to have 28 Nosler behind the counter. No. Even even when the shelves were full, that wasn't sitting back there. So like even as a dealer, um so when and this was not even, you know, placing just orders once the pandemic took place and all that with right now. This was, you know, just doing our basic restock um it took us six months to get 6.5 prc in just basic eldm and, and eldx six months for 6.5 prc which is arguably one of the more cop more popular um you know i guess you could say big uh, big game calibers right now and that's not even you know this is florida they're not big game hunting here you know and so when you look at the fact that you know these companies that are trying to get this ammunition like you said where you're at and the region in which you're going to, um, you know, be hunting. Um, that's where, and then when I kind of work with them about the hunt they're going on, you know, what ammunition is available there? What do they recommend on game? You know, what have they seen perform well on game? Um, because that comes in the whole ethics part of it as well. So it's, it's really a, a unique blend of, you know, the, the advanced, uh, you know, practices um, and I guess, uh, you know, details of that precision rifle um, world. And they clash with the, you know, unique approach and responsibility of a hunter. And I know, at least from, you know, the hunters that I know um, that truly do um, just admire and have a passion for the outdoors and wildlife and animals um like that responsibility does weigh heavy on them and that's oh, yeah. kind of why we harp on it because i know that once i bring it up it's not one of those things where they're gonna be like oh i don't care if i hurt that you know like it weighs on them so they truly do take it into account but if they don't know to take that into account or they've never even thought of that then that's where they could potentially risk that and then ultimately you know have to live with that on their shoulders so, let's talk optics. Oh, I was waiting for this one. Right. Oh, oh boy. Because, I know we had uh, talked about this somewhere. Does the standard rule happen that if you go and buy your custom precision rifle that you're still going to spend three times more on the optics? Um, yeah. I mean, it, it really... <laughs> I, would say, I would say... I wouldn't say three times. I typically tell, um, you know, especially when we... We'll just say... For the sake of this argument, we'll say semi-custom and full-custom builds. Um, I tell guys, you know, semi-custom, you're going to spend at least half that on the optic. On um, full-custom, at times, you're you're spending close to three-quarters of what the, the total rifle would be. Um, I mean, when you're looking at, you know, a full-custom rifle, um, and then you start looking at um, mounting your, you know, Night Force ATAC-R on top, oh, boy, you're... You got some coin. Oh, Night Force is not that bad. And so if you think about like Schmidt and Bender. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> I've got an investor and I'm still not even dabbling there. So yeah, not, <laughs> not in Schmidt and Bender country yet. Huh? No, no. I uh, I looked through a Schmidt and Bender scope once um, through a piece of glass that was on display <laughs> in a case. And I looked through the glass through the scope and it was still clearer than anything I've ever looked through. 
with my naked eye. I want to know who cleans that that display box. It they doesn't come matter. Clean my windows. Yeah, the, gla- <laughs> the glass. The glass. Well, they put it like out of reach. So I'm kind of like standing behind it, barely. I get like a pinhole. I'm like, wow, <laughs> look at that. Uh-oh. That's really nice. I turn to my buddy. He's like, get out of the way. You gotta push me out of the way. He looks. He's like, man, that is really nice. I was like, well. That's the first and the last time I'll probably ever do that. <laughs> well, I mean, that is, like you said, we, we're talking about peeking in rabbit holes. Well, this is peeking in the whole rabbit den. I mean, this is where, you know, it goes off the deep end quick. And I would say, you know, the thing that interests me the most when it comes to optics is, um, like I said, I got my start as the, you know, the budget guy, you know. And so just real quick on my first my first setup, um, <laughs> I mean, when I talk, you know, when I cheaped out, like, dude, I cheaped out. And so I did my first, you know, I based it off a Savage Axis, um, you know, restocked it, glass bedded it, uh, trigger job. And then um, I went, I found out, I did my research on, like, the top, you know, you know, best budget, um, you know, mill, mill optic, which was what I was wanting, meaning mill uh, turret adjustments and mill reticle. Um, so that I don't have to do that, you know, old More marine, math. Yeah. yeah, the marine and army, you know, government idea of having to do your conversion factors, which is genius. But, um, so I wanted specifically that and I came up with, uh, it was the primary arms. Um, I'm not even specific, sure which one it was exactly, but I did some research and found the factory that primary arms makes their scopes out of found that there was another very small company that happened to be <laughs> making an optic that if you looked at the right angle it looked awfully like the same one for about two hundred dollars less <laughs> and so i ended up deciding to roll the dice on that spent less than 750 dollars on the total rifle shot out to 1600 yards and i was like boom but then at that point i realized like there truly is a difference and so the headache that I went through to, you know, accomplish that, I realized I don't know all of it is worth it if you don't plan to go into it with, like, the passion that I had that wanted to make a career out of it. If you're just a hobbyist, yeah, that, you might feel like that's time you won't get back. <laughs> well, it's an investment, right? Because you can spend uh, 250 bucks on a scope, and it'll last you a few years. And then you'll spend another 250 bucks on a scope. It'll last you a few more years. Mm-hmm. Then you'll spend another 250 bucks, 250 bucks, 250 bucks. And if you just spent 1500 bucks the first time, you'd still be on that first $1,500 scope. Yep. Well, and I mean, so when it comes to like offerings that are out there now, I think, especially in the last, I don't even know, maybe I'd say probably the last 10 years, some of the um, top you know, optic offerings or optic brands um, have all of a sudden, they seem to have this soft spot for the little guy. And they're now putting out optics for the budget-minded that in terms of, you know, features um, and, you know, to an extent quality for the price is very hard to beat. Now, other companies are trying to match it. Athlon's coming out with some stuff, a 6-24 to 24 by 56. We've been doing some work with them, just kind of um, testing prototype stuff. Um, and so I feel like, for some reason, there's this soft spot for the budget guy. And, I, you know, that's where I think um, I like that because it makes people a little bit more willing to get into the, to get into the passion and the sport. And so... 
a lot of times I hate to say it, but I feel like what keeps people from really diving in and getting to experience, um, you know, long range precision uh, shooting is the, you know, price point of some of the stuff that it takes to get into it. And so when you're skimping and you're, you know, you're going with the cheaper stuff and it's not performing well, then you get this frustration of like, oh, I just can't do, I'm, I'm not good at this. this and the frustration takes away that passion. And like you said, you'd rather just go ahead and spend it the first time. And then that way you don't have to go back and have all that headache and you can still get into it. But the fact that they can start to get into that stuff and have some quality, I guess, offerings and options, um, on the on the entry level end i think is doing a lot for just kind of growing precision rifles in general this all started like mm, 10 years ago or so with the ruger precision rifle that was the first one to come out right at about the thousand dollar price point and the tactical tactical um Trying to think of the name for the it. Chassis stock. Well, chassis not the, the chassis stocks, but the, uh, the the tactical precision shooting mm-hmm. competitions yeah. and the long range shooting competitions. All that stuff yeah, your is PRS, your three MRL. gun. All that mm-hmm. stuff is catching on like wildfire. Oh yeah, has well, in and, the past ten years. Well, and what's neat is we look at so some of the things we talk about. So you know the reason I try to I'm very familiar and shoot the six five Creedmoor a lot is because you know I'm not just shooting it from a um, the you know the perspective of a marksman that's going out and doing it for fun on my own or whatever you know I'm looking at it from a business as well you know so if I'm getting people that you know don't have all that much experience but want to get in and have success I know that caliber is one of the best offerings because you're not having to overcome and learn and and I guess um you know um, eliminate or account for some of the um factors that may have you know ultimately affect things like your 308 you know the 308 has become in a lot of realms it's now kind of viewed as a training cartridge because the wind does affect it a lot and so if you want to learn to you know read wind and account for wind and how to you know hold over and hold off 308 is a great round to learn on that and and that's not a knock on the 308 at all because at the end of the day i know a lot of guys that can run the 308 10 times better than I can run a 6.5. And so There's an awful you, lot of countries that shoot 308 as their... And that's you know. <laughs> what's going to make the 6.5 even more popular yeah. because D, uh, NATO just made it around. And yeah, so DOD is, is looking... So you yeah. think it's popular now? <laughs> Wait till it's now a NATO round and it's offered everywhere in bulk quantities. You're going to be getting your little ammo cans of like you do 5.56 five, of 6.5 Creed more here soon. You know, I still wonder though, you know, it's a Tested and proven round, right? The, the ballistics on the six five are fantastic, but I still got to wonder if it'd be just as popular if it was, you know, the six five Doofenshmirtz, because there was a six five Grendel and things like that. Well, I mean, it never really took off, but you know, I got to wonder how much of the six five's popularity is still because it's Creedmoor. So well, here, here's the thing to that, right? The six five Creedmoor and the the two sixty Remington are very, very, very close relatives. Yeah. Well, right. and even closer is the six five by fifty five Swede. Right, it's almost identical. But they uh, they don't have that cool name that the Creedmoor does. Well, right? Creedmoor was also the uh, 
uh, range or, 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 or competition. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that was historic. So, yeah. But again, when the 260 came around, and especially when the 65 by 55 Swede came around, they didn't have Hornady's marketing marketing budget exactly. Fair enough. And that's why I mean by you just look at the you know the era in which it takes place, and that's what happens is you know they take something that hey they were on to something there. But unfortunately, maybe they didn't have the same, you know, financial backing as a company to really, you know, dump into the marketing and advertising and promotion side of it. And that's now we all know that's how you generate a following. And so you look at these new calibers that are coming out. The 6.8 Western caught fire like crazy and they released it in a time in which you couldn't find 22 LR. And so the fact that that still got hot and there's literally not even ammunition out right now. How did it get hot? And it's not like people are out experiencing it yet. It's simply because the brand that put it out and then the amount of people they were able to put it in front of. You know what I'm kind of surprised around that this kind of uh, came out, came came in hot and at a good time that you just don't hear anything else about anymore is the 224 Valkyrie. And the thing yeah, is, is it was really hot for like years, especially well, in the black guns, man. It, it was uh, about two and a half, three years, and then... Whoosh, well, the, the problem with it was, is it was great what the, what they, what they identified as a problem and the solution that they provided was outstanding in terms of having a ballistic, a, a caliber with the ballistic performance, you know, out to a thousand yards out of an AR 15 platform. That's not easily done, especially without hand loading. The problem they ran into was that when they first developed it and then they released it, they had not, you know, at the time identified the best twist rate for it. So when it got out and people started wanting to shoot it and then reload for it, that's when they weren't getting the performance that they were expecting. And so the caliber itself is not bad. The caliber itself is great. But because the initial launch didn't have that you know the best twist rate and they've made they've made changes to it and revisions to it since then it's kind of like a stain on their resume that you know oh i I tried that and it you know it didn't shoot it shot like crap and so it's almost one of those things where before you release it you've got to make sure that you've got everything exactly the way that it's going to perform the best because it's one of those things like once you say it you can't take it back Right. Like once you put it out there on the internet, it never goes away. And that's in this day and age, that's exactly what happened. Is the Valkyrie a high twist rate, heavier, heavier bullet cartridge, or or is it? I want to say it was, I think when they have first, I want to say, I'm not entirely familiar. I want to say it was first released at like a one in nine. And then I think when they revised, it's like a one in seven and a half. If off the top of my head, yeah. if I'm correct, so I know, and that's kind of a big difference, and that's that's a funky twist rate, a seven and a half, and so that's one of those things where you you know it, it can kind of come back to um, haunt you if it's if it's something you do have to go back and change. And that was something I, I was going to say. It's I th- for some reason I thought one in six and a half. It might have been. I want to say it was around that one in seven, one in seven. Because well, so something. what was happening with the with the two two four Valkyrie is it came out and guys were wanting to grab these match grade rounds and they want to sling them a long ways and they're throwing them to the guns and they're not performing like a match grade round should right um and then you turn to the cheap varmint load in a 75 grain and it shoots like a dream oh yeah and i'm to me as a as a budget-minded consumer i'm like oh this is great (laughs) the cheap stuff shoots really really good and the expensive stuff is like meh maybe not 
But when it comes to a hunting round, you know, you're talking a seventy five a seventy five grain full metal jacket bullet. You you can't really hunt with that. Most states it's actually illegal to hunt with it. So it was if you wanted to actually harvest an animal with it, you had to use a round that underperformed, which is not what you want to do. Yeah. So it yeah it kind of died off. I mean, there's there are so many. There's an ungodly amount of calibers that will fit into the AR-15 platform. Like I give you oh, one you probably goodness. never heard of, right? The 25 Sharps. I haven't heard that. I haven't heard of that one. That's uh, made by the Shiloh Sharps Rifle Company, right? And it's a 25 caliber bullet on a 223 casing. Oh wow! And it's not a Sammy round. You can only buy it from them, but it's accurate out to what is. And they four? mass produce them like factory, right? Or are they just kind of you can batch you. Rifles? You buy you can buy barrels or you can buy rifles from them, so you can make your own, right? And you can only buy the rounds from them, or you can buy just the bullet, or you can buy a full, you know, bullet casing powder, all that good stuff right off their website. That's one thing that is coming into play where um, things like that, you know, calibers that seem kind of one off, that all of a sudden maybe you know one company or manufacturer brand kind of latches onto, and what would have. Uh, used to have just been the process of becoming an avid reloader and trying to just, you know, make up your makeshift uh, laboratory and figure out what works for it on your own. They're now kind of eliminating that reloading process for these, you know, what used to be, you know, maybe a wildcat type caliber, like the 22 Creedmoor, for instance. So I don't know if you're familiar with the 22 Creedmoor. So essentially it's the 6.5 Creedmoor case neck down to your 22 cal bullet. And so the um, is it designed to pr- you know, compete with the Swift and the uh, twenty two two fifty? Is that kind the twenty two two fifty was kind of the one that was really coming to yeah. uh, you know like I guess uh, be compared alongside? It's they're shooting anywhere from your 70, 75, 80, uh, 90 grain bullets. So you're moving heavier, uh, bigger, bu- uh, you know, heavier uh, bullets, and in specifically that twenty two two fifty that varmint coyote um kind of uh caliber um they were getting great performance out of them i mean an extremely flat round um for out to a you know a good distance with a heavier bullet so when you run that and then now this come so horizon firearms um they jumped they're a custom rifle company that we work with uh they have a their own sister company iota outdoors that does specifically carbon fiber fiberglass stocks um and so horizon jumped on that and they're the only one that offers a you know quote factory or you know i guess ready uh, as is chambered 22 creedmoor at least to my knowledge at the moment but then they also offer uh loaded ammunition so you can just buy it by the box and you're getting these great performances and that's one of those things there's all kinds of companies that do that now alpha munitions unknown munitions they do that where you can even send them in your reloading specs and they'll reload it for you I got a couple of buddies I know that are going to listen to this podcast that after this last chat about some of these rounds, they're going to have a notebook full of stuff about how they got to have it because nobody else does. Oh, you know? that's <laughs> it. Once you like, you know, as once you dive off that diving board, it literally becomes not a um, at first you get into it by, OK, you know, I want to do, you know, kind of do my own rifle that meets exactly what I need. And then it's like, OK, I want to build the rifle that no one else has, that no one else would even think of having that may not you know, be, I guess, reasonable for any application. But guess what? It's mine. <laughs> 
You know, firearms technology is, if you think of it like a cave, right? You you walk into this cave, you walk all the way to the back, you turn around to your buddy, you go, I found the end of it! And then you turn back around and, oh, crap. The hole just went deeper. Yeah, as no soon as you hit the, the end. Is. Yeah. As soon as you hit the end, you turn around and say, I found it. You turn back around and now there's a whole brand new and another passageway. In, in another yeah. continent. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. You made it to the next level. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, how, how but joke's is... on you. It's never ending. It's just <laughs> a revolving door. How much of this... Because company's been making bullets, studying ballistics, I mean, for the entire 20th century for the most part. Yet, it seems like fairly recently, the number, just the sheer volume of cartridges and bullets and calibers and, 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 and of course, varying twist rates and things, it's just, it has, it seems like it's really come unglued. I got to wonder if that's also a factor of just technology. Like you have computers, so there were just the tolerances, like as far as, well, holy cow, we can now measure it that more accurately. Mm -hmm. So they just kind of, is that what's happening? Is they're just shaving little bits and pieces? And Well, I think it's a testament to just the, you know, how much uh, our society has advanced in general. I mean, you look at the fact that now you can 3D print objects at your own home. And so literally have, do not have, that object in hand, you get a print or, you know, the schematics of it, punch in your computer, hit print. Within a few hours, you have the exact object that you were wanting that was not there. That used to be viewed as like a time machine. And so you look at the fact that now... Without a serial number. <laughs> right. And so you look at the fact that now, like, okay, the whole wildcat caliber discussion, you know, that used to be taking place by kind of what would be viewed as like some mad scientist out there. Like, not everybody's doing it. You got to be kind of out there to be willing to do it. And you got to know what you're doing, but you got to have all this equipment, all this time, all this in some level of experience and knowledge. And now you've got the ability to go just say, go to Hornady's website. You can get every single piece of equipment that you need in terms of to load your own ammunition in your garage on one website. And so now it's gone from having only X amount of players in the, you know, in that realm that were really tinkering and pushing and, you know, trying and experimenting with calibers to now, I mean, almost everybody has, at least has access to do it themselves. I and mean, so you basically tripled your, I guess, testing and experimental team. And I mean, m way more than tripled. So I, I grew up with my dad and he had a whole bunch of reloaders and things like that. And I remember going over to their, I had it set up either in a basement or a garage or something like that. And one thing that you could count on if you looked at their bench was they used to have this library of like spear reloading manuals and all those other things. The reloading they, Bible. Yeah, well, they did, but they had to have they had to have it in print and you had to get pretty good at reading it. Whereas now, that's one of the things technology, right? I mean, you can't. I hold all of those books right here yep. yeah. on yeah. this iPhone in my right hand. Exactly. It doesn't matter if it's pistol, shotgun, rifle, or, or, or crazy calibers, even. Somebody's worked up the loads, somebody's got the ballistics, and they've gone on in their little mad scientist world and printed it out for you. And that's the thing. With a disclaimer. Though. Well, specifically, that is like, you ever go look in there, what is it? Powder charge weights, <laughs> your limits. Why? Because you exceed those, you start blowing stuff up. Yeah. Well, how, how do they know that something will blow up? Someone up. had to blow, blow it up, up at yeah. one point. So, so let's think. Of, so you, you think about these people now. They're doing this. You're like they're they're crazy. They're they're mad scientists. Think about what kind of maniac the 
the friends of the guy who invented we're talking two centuries ago he was like check it out this is what i call this a mini ball <laughs> yeah. right and they were like ah, you're crazy bullets are round they're not shaped like that it should be a ball no 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 the mini ball that guy changed the face of firearms technology by I simply changing the shape. I, of I might be willing yeah. to bet that it was an accident where, like, he accidentally loaded a marble into the barrel of his gun, and that's what took place. Where he's like, he didn't even know that, like, he was putting something shaped well, like I, that, and just that's in what what that's what flew out. The mini ball is actually it's it's not a round projectile. It's the shape of a bullet as we know it today. Oh, those Civil War bullets. Man. Yeah. Right. So maybe he broke off the tip of a pencil, and that's what shot. <laughs> it turns out it shot straight and true, and it did devastating once it splintered inside. Yeah. Oh, so, speaking of that, like, how about the first Chinese guy that was sitting there messing around a little charcoal, and I peed in it? What's this yellow <laughs> stuff over here? You know, how did that happen? Right? Was he just messing around, and all of a sudden... His it, rock threw exploded. It, threw it in the fire and wondered how come he didn't have eyebrows left in <laughs> The invention of black powder. <laughs> so <laughs> you talk about, uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed, if you've ever seen this comparison, but a Lego head is .40. It'll fit perfectly down a forty caliber pistol. I did not know that. Yeah. That's dangerous. A little know. Lego man head. It's not going to make it out of the barrel, but you could no. load it into it. You could. Well, yeah. well it's if 10 millimeters, it, right? If you did so. like really low charges, I mean, you could basically be working with like a serious airsoft type. I would say start, <laughs> start popping your friends with Lego heads. Oh, my. And that is like, that's also <laughs> like, that is like psychologically challenging being shot with miniature Lego heads. Like you step on a Lego and I'm about ready to yeah. go to the hospital. Dude, that's like those sim rounds. <laughs> well, this things draw blood. Have All you right. ever been shot a with a sim round? Yeah, you've been yes. shot with a sim round. I've been shot with. Have sim you round. ever been shot with a sim round? <laughs> I know you haven't. They draw I, blood. Even though it was like I knew it was coming, like I was so pissed. Like it, like as if I was surprised. Like your buddy just did it, and oh uh, yeah, it it is. It's not fun. And there's a reason not everybody's just running around doing that. No, I loaded up for home defense because I thought it might be charming if i ever had to use it i took 12 gauge rounds this is a shotgun conversation 12 gauge rounds dropped two monopoly pieces in the wad and then loaded the rest of the a salsa of six and eight shot and i set them aside <laughs> right because i figured you know how cool would that be if like they're wheeling some guy out of my house that shouldn't have been there and he's got the Scotty dog imprinted in his forehead. <laughs> so, Shoots and ladder the little cheese mice. <laughs> well, anyway, I set I set these. I remember I set these rounds up on a shelf over my bench, right? And like, yeah, I gotta keep them separate. And then I got dicking around one time, logging up a box. I was like, oh crap, I'm a couple rounds short. Oh, there's some. And you know, or and then probably just had them, and then maybe knocked over stuff. Anyway, long story short, uh, I have no idea because. Let's just say I got a fair amount of reloaded shotgun ammunition in my house. I have no idea what boxes they're in, but we were at the Lake Panasofsky hunt, and I shot a squirrel, and I walked over to it, man, and it looked like somebody shot oh it with God. a Monopoly piece. Well, dude, I don't know what. Like I was like, what the hell happened to the squirrel? And I was like, oh, you know, which is like a one in a million because I'm sure. And I thus, mean, it wasn't very far away, but I mean, still, the chances of actually hitting a squirrel with a monopoly under piece. pressure ammunition was born. Oh man! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gonna, you I, under pressure it, and you load Lego pieces. Yeah, I'm definitely going to give me some more of the monopoly pieces, though. So, 
Pro oh tip. My goodness. That's his wife going, hey, where'd all the Monopoly pieces go? Well, I got <laughs> yeah. the idea. You ever seen um, about cra- throwing crazy stuff in there was uh, um, Young Guns or Young Guns 2. They uh, they got them locked up in the in the second story of some building. And I forget how they figure it out, but uh, they don't. They've got guns, but they don't have ammunition. So uh, Emilio Estevez, I guess, is playing Billy the Kid. Also, and runs into a stack of dimes. And next thing you know, they you know they escape because they blasted a dude with a stack of dimes. And I was like, hmm. But I said that kind of got me thinking that you could put just about anything you want in a shotgun show. Well, you look at uh, the Demolition Ranch is a oh my goodness. pretty <laughs> famous YouTube channel now. But when he first got his start, the whole thing was based around will it shoot out of a shotgun? I mean, they're loading toothpicks, matches, twenty-two shells. I mean, you name it, he would open up a shotgun shell, cram it down inside there, strap a Mossberg five hundred to it, and squeeze the trigger from behind the side of his truck. No Basically, kidding. identify some sort of dense object and then say, "Will X go through this?" And then see if you can load it into a, some sort of cartridge. Load a and shotgun. Just launch it. Yeah, load a shotgun shell full of hypodermic needles. Load a shotgun shell full of dimes, washers. What? <laughs> What's this thing called? Demolition Ranch. Yep. Yeah, dude's got a, a I'm whole, 50, so a whole that's mansion. Part of the reason why I don't understand all this stuff. But oh yeah, this this is be, I'm on, taking notes it's, tonight. It's on the be, the YouTube. I know what YouTube is, <laughs> but I didn't. I mean, I'm just. I'm, I, I, I shut up. <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> but he that's how he really got his start, was just putting random crap in a shotgun shell and shooting it at a piece of plywood. Dude, I'm crushed. I thought I was like an original. And, and so now, now, literally people will like, hey, why don't you shoot our crazy stuff through and we'll pay you to put it on our your channel? Now you're telling me I missed out on yeah. money. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, because now he's like, check it out. They gave me this safe. They want to see if I can put a 50 cal through it. Or oh, how far this. can I row a canoe with a, 50, a semi-automatic 50 BMG? Boom, 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 and see how far the canoe paddles across this pond. I I just I just watched Based a video not too long ago where he had a bunch of copper tubing, and it like made some weird, crazy bends and stuff. I did see that. And he put the dummies at the end of it, <laughs> just to see if the bullet podcast. would travel. I'm, I'm pulling this up right now. <laughs> well, you know, hey, we're at about the two-hour mark. Are we really? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Lord have mercy. <laughs> An hour and 42 minutes. It really doesn't feel like it, does it? No, it does no, not. I, I honestly feel <laughs> like there was a, it was very surface level discussion in some things. Oh man, you know, here's what's going to happen is, is we're going to, we're going to finish this podcast up and then we're going to get on some of these classes with you. We're going to have you back again and again to talk about different aspects of different things. I mean, you're local. Well, oh, yeah. Why not? You know, so we're going to keep this fun. going. Yeah. Oh Yeah. As the novice who's just pulled up Demolition Ranch for the first time in his life, the first two things I see is, can a Velveeta cheese stop a bullet? (laughs) And then the other one, and this one I'm a little sad for, I don't even know the man, but how did Jake from Demolition Ranch die? But given that that's number two, following can Velveeta cheese stop a bullet, I can already kind of figure out how Jake from Demolition Ranch is no longer with us. So I'm I'm assuming he he uh, submitted that for a DOD bid for new body armor. Or... No, no. <laughs> I'm gonna assume, I'm gonna assume that's his test dummy. Yeah, you've got uh, crazy with, cooter. With the, with the yeah. submit the contract submission process, it does have to be open to you know all vendors and can't you know can't be exclude anyone. So even old cheese man can load up a some sort of body armor uh, plate. How about I bought five, 150 pounds of silly putty and it actually kind of works and it does look like the guy's wearing it as body armor. 
<laughs> you should see him uh, stuff random things into a can cannon and shoot it out of there. All right. Yeah. Under Drama. pressure outdoors tip of the week. Zach, what do you got? Oh, I would say um, we'll go right back to what we talked about with uh, one of the biggest struggles I see. So just like you follow through in any sort of sport, whether it's throwing a baseball, football, basketball, hitting a golf ball, um, when you send that round down range, uh, stay behind the glass, keep your, your reticle, get it back on target, and at that point, humble yourself, put aside pride, and give yourself an evaluation. That way you can identify specifically you know, did you accomplish what you needed to as the shooter, and how did it go? I would, I'd have to say, don't overestimate your ability. Don't be afraid to come to somebody like Heartland and say, well, just because you've been hunting for 20 years and you're going to go on this elk hunt, don't be afraid to come to somebody like Zach and Heartland and say, hey, listen, I want to get some training on this because I want to know that I'm going to be able to shoot this distance at this altitude and you know and that's where we always and i even say it myself i am always a student of the game for the my entire life i always will be always be a student always be learning because at the end of the day you know there's going to be situations that you don't know or you may not be the most um you know educated in or experienced in or this or that and so just the ability to you know just set aside the ego and genuinely want to learn and grow and better yourself um, that's really what I would encourage you. Just be a student. Jim? You guys are killing me because I was earlier going to say that be willing to pay tuition because you're going to pay it one way or the other. But <laughs> you guys have now just covered that. So um, I'm scrambling for a pro tip here other than the one about loading up some Monopoly pieces and a salsa to uh, you know make your home defense rounds that much more comedic when they take up into the corner. And I really ain't got anything. I, mean, I gave you a pretty good one yesterday about the or last week for the uh, my financial planning tip, but I don't. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm dying here on the microphone. <laughs> well, I, I'll give you I'll give you a second a, a bit of a reprieve here, and I'm going to say, um, super light rifles aren't cheap, right? So when you're looking to shave five pounds, uh, the first place you should look is down towards your gut. <laughs> the next place you should look is what's on your back. And then, after you've shaved five pounds from your gut, ten pounds from your pack, if you still feel like it's not light enough, then look at the rifle you carry in your hands. Yep. yep. Because uh, losing five pounds around your stomach is not only good for your health, it's a whole lot cheaper. Well, and the process of why are you wanting to make the, light, the uh, rifle lighter so that you can carry it and it, you know a little bit easier? Well... If you get in shape and you get a little bit better of you know being able to expend some energy and not be affected, that rifle's not going to feel quite as heavy. Right. You know, I do have a very practical thing that sometimes I think we get caught up in um, in these these ideas. Hey, we got to have this precision rifle. Um, don't hide it from your spouse. You know, guys talk about that, and you see Facebook memes. No, man. Um, she loves you. She's going to be reasonable. She's probably not going to say no. She's going to say no, not right now. But if you go back and you show her, hey, I've got this idea. I'd like to work toward it. I don't want to go out and, and drop $3,000 today, but I would like you to know that I'm going to set aside a couple of bucks over a period of time because I have this desire to have this and it's important to me. 
you know, do that. And at the same time, be kind enough to realize that she may also say, I think that's a wonderful idea, honey, because I have a $3,000 thing I would like to do someday. So I'm going to set aside a little from mine. You set aside a little from yours and we'll have a race to see who gets their goodies first. And the best way to get it right away, tell her you're getting his and her rifles. Boom. <laughs> that is, they're in. I got another pro tip for you on that front there, Jim. All right. This is something I still do, have done ever since I've, ever, ever since I got married and, and started buying up my guns and bringing them in the house. Every single time I would come home with a new gun. She knew I was going to buy a gun. Every single time I'd come home with it. I would also come home with a gift certificate to the spa for a couple's massage. But I'm not going. She's going to take one of her friends. She's going to get a day away from the house. She's going to go get a massage, get a facial, whatever else. She's gone for four hours. Guess where I go when she's gone for four? To the range. Right? And hey, it works. And then eventually, you know, you do that so often that there were times when I'm, I walk out of the house with a gun case. I walk back in with a gun case. She's like, what is, did you get a new gun? I'm like, no, I had this one getting worked on. She didn't even know when I was coming in with a new one, coming going in, going and coming and going with an old one. You never know. So it, it works out in the long run. But if you're going to spend 800 bucks, Massage Envy has that couple's massage for like 100 bucks. <laughs> done right there and that's one of y'all are talking about like you know like oh man i never thought of it like that never like when i'm talking about things that you know we see and we how we approach it well i've never thought of these things because i don't i'm not having to do them for myself i'm doing them for a customer so she's i'm not i bring a rifle home and i'm working on it. it's like you know that's he's not dumping money it's not our finances that's going out the tank so <laughs> i'm i'm I kind of feel some empathy for you guys. Yeah, well, but still, the, the happy happy wife, happy life for all you youngsters that are listening to the podcast, listen to the old man. Uh, that's not just a saying. That's <laughs> Learn that one early. Very true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Well, hey, that's it. We don't have any new reviews this week. You guys are letting us down once again. Um, but if you write the reviews, I'll read the reviews. We still got hats on sale. So you got to get some hats. And BHA's got the uh, Swanee River trip coming up. What are the dates on that, Jim? Absolutely. So the uh, three-day trip starts on May 21st. That's a Friday at 9 a.m. We're going to meet at uh, the Swanee River Canoe Rental in Live Oak, Florida, just outside of the Swanee River State Park. But for those of you that are really intrepid, uh, you can get out there on Wednesday, May 19th, and we're going to run a 50-mile trip. How about, Zach, you paddling, man? I'm always in for a good fishing trip. Well, fantastic, man. Like I said, uh, I don't know if you got the flexibility to get out there on a Wednesday and roll 50 miles with us, but before 50 miles sounds like some excruciatingly long trip. Runs about 10 miles a day, obviously. And the river runs, give or take, three miles an hour. So whether you want to paddle or not, you're still going to get there eventually. Right, but meanwhile, there's some fantastic panfish and there's some great catfish. Get yourself an opportunity to catch the uh, the Swanee bass. I think they may even have. I don't think they've got Choctaw bass in there, but you know, Swanee bass. That's only one or two places in the country you can catch that. And you yeah. might see a levitating fish. I'll say catch you a sight uh, at a sturgeon on the way. Yeah, we'll be up there. The sturgeon should be up the river by then. Um, it's uh, the Gulf sturgeon four foot fish they come out of the water and they just seem to hang in the water and levitate but it's great we've done it three years most of the places that we're going to be staying in are going to be screened in cabins fully screened in so after your 
day on the water, you pull up and you don't have to worry about getting eaten alive or setting up a tent. We'll have one night, the last night that we'll be on the riverbank, probably build a fire and do it old school, the uh, the official. Um, uh, who's that fellow Mark Twain wrote about that everybody knows about that I'm making escape my mind right now? Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer and yeah, Huck Finn trip, but... Zach, we got to get you out there, man. Hey, like I said, this was fun. I enjoyed doing this. This will, like you said, this won't be the last time. We got uh, plenty of rabbit holes to make sure there's no, uh, you know, into the cave just in case. Fantastic. We really appreciate you coming on. I mean, this is going to be a really good episode. And when you guys are reading that podcast description, you're going to scroll down there. You're going to see our Facebook page. You're going to see a way to join the Under Pressure Outdoors podcast community. You're going to find that link to the Florida chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers where you can find that sweet Swanee River trip. Uh, you're also going to find a link to join Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And then down there as well, we're going to throw in that Heartland Precision link. So if you guys want to book a class with Zach right here in the state of Florida, you'll be able to do that. Right. Is there any other way you, you prefer them to contact you or does the website work just great? So we're actually revamping the website on a few specific things, but the courses and all that works. Uh, my contact info is on there. Um, then you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram are probably the two primary ways people tend to uh, get a hold of us. Um, and so anything from, you know, equipment, accessories, uh, you know, rifles, um, training. And then also, you know, I'm always about our whole purpose is to grow um, just the uh, outdoorsman and the um, just all things precision rifle. Um, and so if there's questions, um, any sort of uh, interests or just things that you may want to uh, just maybe ask someone that you not, not sure exactly what it is or how it what's the best this or that i'm always open for uh, just sitting down and and trying to just help everyone um have a little bit better understanding at the end of the day and i usually get a lot more out of that uh than they do as well well so it's heartland precision rifle comma florida yep for the florida uh florida location i've just liked that page we had some pretty pictures on there check them out so uh before we started recording all this, you had some pretty sweet rifles and only got to fondle one of them. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and hit that big white square, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Adios.